Hello and welcome to Oh God, What Now? I'm Dorian Linsky. Let's meet this week's panel. Ian Dunt is a columnist to the eye. Hello, Ian. Hello. As we record, it's the day before polls open in the local elections. Um, what should we look out for on this year's particular electoral map? And when it comes to the, the spin room, what would constitute uh, an unambiguously good night for Labour, if such a thing exists? Well, I think sort of a probably bollocks to the numbers. So there's an awful lot of chatter at the moment. You guys will be living in the future where you actually see proper numbers of, you know, 800 seats. And it's not going to happen. It certainly won't be more than 400. Um, the more important thing for me is what's happening to the numbers in certain areas, right? So look at the blue wall. What are the Lib Dems doing to the Tories in the blue wall? Uh, places like Cambridgeshire. And then look at places like Hartlepool, like Wakefield, the Red Wall, and see whether Labour is managing to keep the councils it has. This is not a, a situation where we're looking to them to make tremendous gains. We're looking for them to stop the rot. Uh, so I would look at that. I would look at London. And then finally, where, you know, there's some pretty key sort of Tory areas really, that they'd be looking to secure. I mean, like Westminster, Labour's talking down its chances of doing that. I kind of think Labour should be in a position where it could potentially do that sort of thing. Um, the, the problem Labour has, I guess, is that this year, because it's largely a lot of the key, you know, key races are in Labour-held areas, and it's sort of ones that were up in 2018 when they did quite well. So it's not, they're not in a position to make these huge sweeping gains. Right, right I mean, but the thing is, they... They did quite well. I mean, they weren't doing fantastically well in like 2018. It was like level pegging in, in the polls. Right. You know, and now they're sort of roughly sort of 10 points ahead. You should be improving on it. Um, they should be coming second in Scotland. And I expect that they will be. And that, that, that is a meaningful moment, mm. I think. And they're resting with decline. I have to say, I think all of this will sort of should be overshadowed by the really historic thing that's happening, which is what's going on in Northern Ireland. Yeah, which is really where the key developments mm. are taking place, fundamentally historic developments that we will still be talking about many decades from now, unlike these local election results, which I can assure you we will not be. Uh, Roz Taylor is editor of the LSE's COVID-19 blog. Hi, Roz. Hello, Dorian. Um, Priti Patel is facing mass legal action over the Homes for Ukraine scheme in what's been described as a chaotic backlog. Is this anything more than standard Home Office incompetence? Is there anything more uh, unpleasant at work? Possibly. There was a whistleblower who suggested that, in fact, they were not issuing uh, visas to children and delaying those in order to ensure that families couldn't go over. So there is a suggestion of that, but I think it's largely incompetence. And there are two different things going on here. One is the administrative backlogs, and Home Office clearly hasn't got enough uh, people working on this. And the other is a problem with who's applying because we had a story on the BBC today uh, saying that as many as, in some authorities, as many as 30% of all the people who are trying to sponsor refugees are single men over 40 who are asking for women in their 20s and 30s. And Jesus. we don't like to think of ourselves as a society like this, but unfortunately it seems to be happening. Now the problem is that the more checks you have to try and weed out those people, the longer it's going to take and then you have further backlogs. So this is a huge, huge problem. So that's a good reason for for yes. delays. Yes. But of course, they're not just delays with a home office. They're also delays of local authorities who have the responsibility right. for checking out the accommodation. Over the weekend, uh, there was a draft opinion, Dorian, from the US Supreme Court leaked, and it suggested that they'll overturn Roe v. Wade. That would make abortion illegal in up to 26 states. Is there anything that can be done to protect those rights now? Is it just a matter of time before they're rolled back? I mean, there is something that could be done, but it probably can't be done, um, which is introduce federal legislation through Congress to protect the right to an abortion. But basically, the entire story of Joe Biden's presidency has been that uh, they can't get rid of the filibuster, um, largely because of Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema, who don't seem to like 
being Democrats. Um, the Democrats don't like them being Democrats. Um, and therefore, you've got that filibuster, um, which means that you need to get over 60 votes. And basically, as long as you have the filibuster and as long as you have such a narrow margin and such a deeply polarised uh, political system in which there is very little work across the aisle. No, you can't do anything about it. What I think will be interesting to see, and this is really hor- this is very obviously horrifying news if this is indeed what the Supreme Court are going to do, what would be interesting is exactly, there's, there's a whole load of logistical challenges ahead for a lot of these Republican states. It's, there are a lot of things that happen, unintended consequences when you, when you ban abortion. A lot of them are just not set up to look after, uh, you know, with the, to women, to look with health care and housing and social care. So I wonder how many of them will actually go full steam ahead. Um, but there aren't really any legal obstacles now if the Republican, if Republican legislatures want to do it, they will do it. The political change that this might make is this may become a huge issue in the um, midterms where Democrats are on the back foot, largely because of the economy. And if this sort of drives Democrats to the polls, then you might see potentially them holding the House and and the Senate or even making gains. But that's like it's a really tall order. But that's where the hope lies for, you know, down in November as opposed to right now. Because there's only a minority of Americans who actually want to ban abortion, isn't it? Something like 28 percent want to ban it completely. Uh, Yeah, it was like 30, 30 ish. Yeah, it's a minority. It's, it's a minor- but then Republicans are the party of the um, of the minority that use every lever they can to push through policies which are largely unpopular. Indeed. Our guest this week was leader of the Labour Party between 1983 and 1992. His tenure included the miners' strike, the poll tax, battles with the left, and the end of the Cold War. His speeches were so good that one Joe Biden dropped out of the 1988 presidential race after he was caught plagiarising them. <laughs> Neil Kinnock, welcome to the podcast. Hello. Um, You've recently become chair of Labour and Communications, a group founded to boost Labour's image in the corporate comms and public affairs sectors. What's the the task in front of you? What's your sort of main challenge there? Labour and Communications is not really about, quote, unquote, boosting image. It's about getting a much more focused analysis of what needs to be done in communicating Labour's message or messages, right. and to apply a professional technique to that, very openly and honestly, there's, it's not a spin factory in any shape or form. And Labour and Communications is made up of nearly 2,000 young people who are communication professionals of various kinds, some in the media, several in or around politics in NGOs and so on, so they are people who have got Labour Party cards, who have made that commitment quite uh, early on in their lives and want to use their expertise in order to achieve the objectives I said. And their publications so far uh, have very strongly reflected that, including, for instance, counselling in their first publication, for which I wrote the foreword, that Labour should managed to reduce its policy account to about six, maximum 10 clear messages in order to ensure that there is a a focus in the public mind on what Labour stands for, is seeking to do, and Labour wants to do in government. And I think that that's 
very wise counsel, and it replicates some of the best techniques used before and after 1997. But it bears repeating because the great danger is for any party in opposition, and this particularly afflicts the Labour Party, is that we have a galaxy of meaningful policies that individually really do convey significance to groups in the population, but not an overall declaration of yeah. mission that really resonates. Yeah, we've learned that there is such a thing as too many policies. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. This week on the show, we'll have Neil and the panel's reflections on Labour, Westminster sleaze and more. And in the extra bit for Patreon backers, we're separating our Francis Urquharts from our Hugh Grants in Love, actually, as we choose our favourite fictional MPs. But first, a word from Roz. Our next live show is just over a month away. Dorian, Ian and I will be taking the podcast minibus to the Old Market Theatre in Hove on Wednesday the 8th of June. Tickets are on sale now and Patreons have a special discount for all live shows. We'll see you there. Thanks, Roz. First up, disgraced Tory MP Neil Parrish, who has now resigned, came up with one of the all-time great excuses, claiming that Googling tractors led him to accidentally watch pornography in the House of Commons. <laughs> that's still, it's been several days now, and that's still quite funny. It is. You have to, <laughs> I think you have to do quite a lot of clicking. I don't think that's a one-click error, i got to say. Unless you're very short-sighted. Well, I, I don't tweet, uh, but I do come across tweets. And the one that really struck me between the eyes and made me laugh out loud was just a picture of a tractor with the deputy leader of the Labour Party sitting on it. <laughs> and over the top was the caption, that's page three of the mail seven. <laughs> Unsurprisingly, this has started a conversation about misogyny in Westminster. Meanwhile, the Tory press is calling in the Cormor police, accusing Keir Starmer of breaking lockdown rules with beer and curry and pushing the message that politicians are all the same. That was a very good pun, Dorian. Thank you. That really linked up your two core interests. <laughs> um, do, you, do you think the behaviour of MPs is worse than it used to be? Or are we just more aware of their transgressions now? In fact, Neil Parrish's transgression, of course, is something that would once not have been possible. Yes, Unless one had true. tractor magazines that somehow... <laughs> you know what I mean? Be like, yeah, because I mean, once upon a time, there was no such thing as tractor porn. But yeah. now... In the <laughs> or as Jimmy Carter said, in the mind. I guess that's been a permanent feature since Greek times. <laughs> <laughs> but fortunately, we could not read the minds of MPs. Um, so, do, I mean, are we just more aware of these things now? Are they more publicised? I don't know. It must be a bit of both. But you do... I mean, for a start, we, we don't know what his motivations are, right? Because it could be quite malevolent, vindictive, a kind of form of sexual assault, you know, in order to make women feel uncomfortable. Or it could just be that he's just a raging idiot that doesn't know that you probably shouldn't be looking at pornography if you're sat in the House of Commons chamber. We don't know. You do get the sense of a sort of intellectual degradation, especially on the Conservative benches, but across Parliament, really. I mean, even if you think back to the sort of parliament that we had before the 2019 election, you could, at a snap, you know, you might not support the Conservatives, but you could easily name a dozen people that were serious, heavyweight people, respectable Conservatives, intellectually capable, even if you didn't agree with them. That's harder to do now in a way that it wasn't before. I think also there must be some kind of moral corrosion because organisations do take on a sort of cultural taint of the leadership, you know, to a certain extent. And that's not scientific. It's hard to show. But if at the top of the party, you were saying, 
rules don't really fucking matter. In fact, you know, back in the thing, you know, we, if you break the rules, we'll try and change the standards mm-hmm. organization so that you don't really get into trouble for it. If you have things like, you know, awards for the greatest sexist, if you have, you know, parties where you're very honest, it's kind of unsurprising that you're going to find some people in that party that are going to sit there and go, I can do what I fucking like, mate. And they're going to sit there and, you know, in the end, watch Tractor Porn in, in the House of Commons. Um, Owen Patterson's uh, old seat was a safe Tory seat where there was a huge upset. Do you think something similar could happen in the Tiverton and Honiton by-election? Yeah, and I think the safe money is on that, which is partly what makes it kind of so dangerous. And, and our expectation at the moment, it's sort of along the lines of what Oliver Dowden has been laughably, hypocritically warning of, is, you know, that there'll be probably a Lib Dem and that the Labour will probably sit back a bit. We'll wait and see whether that continues to be the case now that it's being talked about in public rather than something that seems to have been happening in private. But if so, we would probably expect a Lib Dem win there. And that does make things a little bit more dangerous. I mean, this is a seat that since its creation has been Tory, you know, in 1997. So it does make things a little bit more dangerous. But yeah, but the the good money would be on the Tories losing that seat. Um, Neil, when you were in the Commons, how much of a, how, how much awareness was there of misogyny, harassment, you know, the, the sort of behaviour deliberately making um, women feel uncomfortable? I mean, obviously, the conversation is a lot noisier now. Mm. So I'm wondering what it was like then. Misogyny as such certainly would have existed, like it does throughout society. But as a feature of the commons, I don't think it would have registered at all, actually. A number of reasons for that, partly to do with the fact that the House of Commons reflects society in general. And the issue of misogyny, uh, wrongly but nevertheless truly, got a lot less attention than it rightly gets now. The major errors of judgment, wrongdoing that you could see would be to do with booze. Uh, The House of Commons has got dozens of bars, uh, less now than it used to have. And given the hours that the House of Commons used to work, and to some extent still does, but it's nothing like as extended or excessive as it used to be. And that means that when people work late at night and they want to get together for a chat, uh, the tendency has always been to go to the bars. And of course, there are some people who never know what their limit is or should be. So you would get falling down drunks. There weren't many in number. They were the regular few on both sides but that was about the only real misconduct that you could observe fairly regularly. Because when you dig into the history of the commons, you know, um, across the decades, there are, there is some quite sort of hair-raising behaviour. Do you think there is a broader problem with the quality of MPs now, the quality sort of the average MP, or, or is it the sort of bias towards the present where we just forget the sort of the rotters of the 1970s or whatever? <laughs> well, it's bits of all that. And I don't know then or now what an average MP is in any case. MPs fall into much the same categories as most people. The great majority of them are dedicated and hardworking. And that's not political fluff. It's the case. And people do work very long hours. Uh, Those that have staff also uh, have staff working very long hours. And... uh, Since they have no employer other than the general public, there's no one to pull them up. There's no 
human resources department. Mm. There's no system of discipline except for great indiscretion or political deviation from the party line. And then, of course, the whips come down. Informally, of course, the whips, the party managers, and indeed associations of colleagues and friends do exert discipline and sustained standards simply by peer pressure. And that happens in just about all organizations. I mean, the good news is MPs are not special. The bad news is that people expect them to be special, rightly so, and therefore they must, whether it's onerous or not, and it shouldn't be onerous, conform to reasonable standards of decency and conduct. Ros, like Neil says, it's an unusual sort of employer-employee situation there. When um, Lindsay Hoyle promises changes to the culture in, in Westminster, I mean, I don't quite know what he, he means by that, but do you need sort of something more substantial? Because one of the big excuses that's always, that's always raised was just like, well, um, it's up to the voters to decide. To punish. So you just wait. And if, of course, a lot of time, if it's a safe seat, well, the voters aren't going to be passing judgment on particular bad behavior. Does there need to be sort of reform to, to sort of disciplinary procedures or, or beyond? I think commerce culture is always about 10 to 20 years behind the rest of society. And I think that's partly a function of the age of the people who tend to be MPs. And of course, the age of the people, don't, let's not forget the House of Lords either, who are considerably older often as well. And they also pass legislation. So that's... Uh, Some of them great, great people. Great people. Many of them. Including including present company. But, you know, as I say, often because they've you know, previously been MPs, holder. So it is hard to change the culture. And I think as well, although there are obviously more women in the Commons, and there were a lot more women in the Commons after 1997 when Tony Blair came to power, those women have often not been juggling the same responsibilities that women in other professions do because the job of being an MP is so all-encompassing if you do it properly, which I think most women want to do, it's so busy that frankly it's extremely hard to combine with any kind of family life at all. Mm. And the result of that is that very few women have tried to do so. I mean, Stella Creasy recently has been a real pioneer in this in actually saying, yeah, I should have the right to breastfeed my child in, in Parliament. But people have been horrified that she asked to do so. That is an example of how far behind the Commons is in terms of the Parliament is in terms of the rest of society. But in terms of what we can do, I mean, there's a lot of talk of reforming processes and HR being, you know. And yeah, I, I'm always a little suspicious of having more processes. I think one of the key things would be to close some of the bars, which sounds terribly puritanical. I don't want to come all over a, a temperance mission. But what other workplace has so many bars where people go so often during the work, their working day and get drunk? And, you know, some people will abuse that. Other people will just abuse it a bit less. But there will be behavior that no one wants to see as a result because alcohol lowers your inhibitions and you make bad choices. And I think mixing it too much with work is fun and no doubt makes the Commons a more bearable place to be. I'm sure, Ian, you've got views on this as well as someone who's in the lobby. I never disagreed with you more in my life. <laughs> I thought you'd say that. Yeah, but maybe that would help. Disagree with me all you like that. I, I, know, totally. I mean, just, I, I, mean I, yeah. I, would have, I would have died without the alcohol 
in Parliament because I was full of hate and disappointment at the world around me. And the only way to get past that was just to to sort of inject whiskey into my body. And this those are the closest places. No, I think it was a very healthy working culture. You could try <laughs> Boris Johnson's cure, going in the fridge. <laughs> right, when, when you hate or are under pressure. Uh, Stella Creasy is a very good friend of mine and a terrific MP. There's no question at all about that. And I say, without counsel from her and on my behalf, Really, Parliament shouldn't need stringent rules because there are certain expectations of elected people in public life, not just in Parliament, but in the Scottish and Welsh and Northern Ireland assemblies and in every local council, that the public can reasonably expect to sustain standards. And then if there's the occasional stray, if somebody has one too many uh, uses some bad language or does something disreputable, it can be put into context. What's becoming increasingly evident now is that people expect rules to govern their behavior. And Stella poses the very correct question, why not? What is the basis of resistance? And it is superstition which another word for convention, but in the case of this place of democracy, absolutely absurd, absolutely absurd. Um, Ian, meanwhile, the Tories and their supporters are really working the story of Starmer's after-work beers. Are, oh, yeah. are they getting... I mean, it's obviously part of Operation Big Dog, was it? Operation Defend Big Dog, remember that? Um, <laughs> I mean, are, are they getting anywhere? Do they, do they have a case? Are they being able to throw up enough smoke that it's sort of working on voters? I don't think they have a case. I mean, I can't see... I can't really see the issue. It's, you know, you're out, you're campaigning, remember, so they're at work, you get curries. I mean, they talk about how much the curry costs, but you're getting it for, you know, quite a lot of people in that place. You eat it, you have a beer as you're having the meeting. It doesn't, and for them to say, oh, no one keeps on working after 10 p.m., it's like, well, you clearly oh. haven't worked on an election campaign there because I can assure you that they do. Yeah. So, no, on the, on the facts of it, it seems like nonsense. And the polling suggests so far that the public do not think the Starmer has anything to answer for and that, that Boris Johnson does. I do think, I mean, I, I have a concern i mean i definitely think it's it's worked from their point which is you know that thing of if you just put something on the front page of the daily mail day after day eventually the bbc sits there and goes well we've got to start covering it a bit because it's on the front page of the mail all the time and sure as fuck it eventually happens however even that could have been more easily dealt with if i think starmer was a bit better in response to it he's just super weird so he keeps on i mean even he was just refusing to talk about whether durham police have been in contact with him you're like why why don't you just say that they haven't? There was a slight sort of complication as to whether Rayner was there or not. The trouble is with stuff like that is it's the scent of blood for the lobby. And they were just gunned for it. And I think that that part, you can't put at the blame of the male or the BBC or anything. That was also the way that Labour started to answer the questions looked a bit sketchy. Uh, finally, Roz, the, um, if we're talking bad interviews, Boris Johnson is king of the week. Um, with his interview with Susanna Reid. <laughs> well, it's a bit short of king of the world, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Why was it so bad? What did uh, what did it reveal about? I say reveal about him. I mean, we 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 know him. What did it confirm about him? What did it confirm? 
Well, it was just unspeakably crass. I mean, Elsie was the case of Elsie, who's a seventy-seven-year-old woman whose energy bills have gone up so much that she's apparently riding around on buses all day because that's the only place that she can keep warm. And the first thing he said was, "I was the one who brought in the Freedom Pass." So that which he didn't. Which he didn't. Yeah. I mean, as as Neil says, he he actually slightly lowered the age of the Freedom Pass to to reflect the fact that the women's pensionable age had gone up, but the actual Freedom Pass was brought in in 1973, mm-hmm. which I believe would be when Boris Johnson was at primary school. So, But he got away with that, of course. But it's just a very bad look. I mean, when you have no meaningful policies to tackle the cost of living, you get forced into telling people to lower their quality of life. And that's a very bad look. And it's especially bad when your chancellor, for example, has built his brand encouraging people to spend to revive the UK economy, which was what Eat Out to Help Out was all about. You actually subsidise them to do that. That, was, that wasn't that long ago. It was two years ago. To go from that to eat Aldi own brand baked beans to for dinner, which is what George Eustace was telling people to do today, goes down very badly with voters. Next this week, it's 25 years since Tony Blair's Labour Party won a historic landslide. We'll be talking to Neil Kinnock about Labour's past, present and future. Um, I'm going to start with uh, where we were when uh, the results came in, a moment of rare joy in, uh, in my political life. Um, I actually didn't vote in that election because at the last minute... I had to go and do a job in Moscow. A job that was more important than the future of Great Britain, just to to be clear. I mean, we... I looked at the polls and thought they'd be okay without my vote in Islington. I thought they'd be okay. (laughs) And um, And in any case, Moscow demanded his presence. I did. This this does all sound a bit Dominic They were all filling the streets, (laughs) shouting, where's Dorian? Why isn't he here? (laughs) Well, um... I, I did unfortunately break Russia while I was there. No, I I stayed up, so I stayed up all night and uh, ended up watching the results in my hotel room and very much wished I was I was there because Moscow was not as excited as I was. This is the this PG result. version of this story because you've told me this story before and I'm sure it was a bit more uh, no, frivolous just, and exciting. Just had a lot of coffee and stayed up late. Okay, that's great, that's good. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, as you did when you were working for Dance Music Magazine, um, <laughs> Roz, where are you? Um, I was in Norwich because I was doing my finals at the time. And as you can probably imagine, I took my finals pretty seriously. Um, I was at the University of East Anglia (laughs) and I helped to elect Charles Clark in 1997, who later went on, of course, to be Home Secretary. Uh, It was was a safe Labour seat, so I didn't have much to worry about. I think it was the only safe Labour seat in Norfolk or something at that time. But, um, yeah, so I couldn't really celebrate that much, as I say, because Mm. I had my finals. Much more responsible than me, Ian. Uh, when I was at school, because I'm so terribly, terribly young, just want to make just so much younger than you guys. So, Thanks. you know, I was Thanks, just, just in school, like ba- barely pubescent, you know, barely aware of what was going on. We only have barely. to look at your hairline, Ian. <laughs> <laughs> we know that. So you didn't even know what politics was, did you? I, I, did, I, did. I, I do. I do literally remember the Portello bit. So... I, my parents did stay up for Portillo and I remember that and I remember yeah. my mum jumping up and down on the bed and just generally thinking this is a moment of euphoric joy so it did leave an imprint but yes again just 
to be clear, just very, very young indeed. Uh, Neil, we know where you were because yes. you were on camera at the yeah, Royal Festival right. Hall. Yeah, <laughs> digging up and down. Down yeah. so things can only get better. Um, how do you sort of, uh, how do you look back on that, on that night now? Ecstatically. I mean, it was such a wonderful night. Uh, everything came together in complete joy. I was interviewed by Jeremy Paxman, and he said in his earnest Paxman way, uh, what do you think is happening, Mr. Kinnock? And I said, we're having a national by-election. The people of Britain have at last learned what a tactical vote means and can do. And the consequence is that uh, Labour's going to have a gigantic majority, deservedly so. And that uh, proved to be the case. The rest of the night between TV studios and some um, liquid replenishment is a bit of a blur, but I do know it was entirely joyous. Next morning, I did reflect on that glorious sunlit morning when Tony and Cherie appeared on the steps of Downing Street. I fleetingly had a spasm of, damn, why couldn't that have been myself and Glennis? But, I mean, it lasted seconds, maybe even milliseconds, and it wouldn't have been human not to mm. have thought like that. Um, I mean, Blair's sort of poll ratings now when people talk about sort of former leaders are, are surprisingly low. He's still this very, he's this very divisive figure, so different to what he was on that day in yep. 1997. Um, whereas, say, Gordon Brown has had, you know, his kind of popularity has had has a real comeback. What is it about Blair, do you think, that has made him, you know, given him the reputation he has now? Uh, can I just say in Gordon's case, not to flatter him, this happens to be the truth, uh, that he is immensely hardworking, he is dedicated to the same causes, and has made that very clear. Mm. So that very trenchantly, he demonstrates his utter commitment to the progressive causes of education, combating world poverty, and providing rational, usable answers for a United Kingdom and the new human race. So... That's not changed about Gordon since he was about 17 years of age. And he does it with great fluency and conviction. Tony, uh, in the same way that he, in many ways, justifiably was adored as the breath of a new age, epitomizing all that was potential and possible about uh, Britain, even when he used cliches about the young country and so on, um, his fall from esteem was almost Greek in its dimension. And it came particularly via Iraq and the debacle of Iraq and the deaths and the uh, misleading detail and all the rest of it. To some extent, it also came because uh, after maybe seven, eight, nine years, People grow tired of leaders and almost every activity becomes suspect. Mm -hmm. So that when Tony went on holiday or had a meeting with Berlusconi or went to the Spanish conservative prime minister's daughter's wedding, mm. to really extend the point, uh, then people thought, oh, that's the company he wants to be in. And of course, that was never really true about Blair, but... 
as he understood better than most people, it's impressions that count. So the decline in esteem was gradual. And when eventually it was manifested at the time of his departure and since, it's been even more profound. So he extraordinarily has got more recovering in the public perception to do than most politicians have to do simply because he started from such a height. You took over uh, the Labour Party after a, a sort of massive defeat, as has Starmer. Yeah. Um, and at various points, he's been, it's, it's, it's been called like a Neil Kinnock, a John Smith, a Tony Blair. We, sh- you know, we, we shall see. And of course, it reminds us that it was such a long journey from 83 to 97. Can that journey be made in one election cycle, do you think? It can be, not least because Keir Starmer is not Kinnock or John Smith or Tony Blair. (laughs) He is actually Keir Starmer, a man (laughs) with particular innate strengths. Some have developed uh, over the years, but his innate strengths are honesty, directness, realism, maturity. I think that uh, Keir was probably born mature, uh, some way past adolescence, uh, even as he came out of the womb. And that's, Forensically. that steadiness, <laughs> exactly, that forensic quality is valuable at any time. But now it has and will achieve even greater value because of the absolutely graphic contrast with what we've got currently in Downing Street. And even if Johnson is replaced, when the Tories resolve the question of Has he got to go or will we have to go? That'll be the question in their minds. It is in many of their minds now. But even if he's replaced, the stain of this period, including the enormous pressure on people of even quite substantial incomes and relatively high security, it's affecting even them. And they will want to consider whether they want to continue with Tory government into the 13th and 14th and 15th year. I think their answer will be no. And a large part of that will come because of the massive contrast of maturity Mm. and good judgment that's evident uh, with just about every breath that Keir Starmer takes. And if someone get, go, you know, looks up some of your, your key speeches uh, on YouTube, including the very memeable uh, 1985 conference speech, which is mm. often, often quoted, um, there's a fire and a passion and a sort of sense of combat, sometimes largely against the Tories, sometimes with, within your own party, that, that is sort of absent, um, largely absent from the, the Labour front bench. Do you think that that's a, a real lack that... Labour can appear to, you know, that sensibleness can appear bloodless. Yeah, that's the difference, and I think it's a healthy difference between myself and Keir. For me, that assertiveness, that uh, sense of combat uh, was and is natural, and it would have been silly for me to try to suppress it. I couldn't have in any case. And so what you saw was what you got. Uh, Keir is not a warrior in that sense. And I say that without uh, affectation. I mean, it's just a word to apply. 
to a set of circumstances and a personality. Not a warrior, but a consistent, relentless fighter. And that's why he's a forensic lawyer. That's why, in his case, he says, don't get mad, get even. And I think that as a technique in politics, as in boxing, it's probably much wiser counsel. You came from the left of the party, but arguably you came defined by having to fight uh, an aspect of the left of the party. Was that a painful experience? And not in the sense that I was having to contest the people I think of as the ultra-leftists, a grouping that almost always exists to a small extent in the Labour Party, uh, of people who give a higher premium to power in the Labour Party than power for the Labour Party. You know, that's a generalisation, but it's not far from uh, the chemical truth. (laughs) And... Uh, So consequently, since they'd always irritated the hell out of me and made me occasionally (laughs) despair, even even before I went to university, I was bumping into these people full of affectations about the potential of the proletariat and all the rest of it, and not in any way really interested in serving their community, their country, humanity, but interested in proffering their own analytical theories, which, of course, can be useful and adaptable in academic settings and very entertaining over a beer late at night, but not much bloody use to the human race. And so consequently, I'd always uh, had my battles with them. Unfortunately, they had more significance by 1983 than they'd had before which is why I had to take them head on. And the difficult bit wasn't denouncing them. It was keeping my patience, particularly through the miners' strike. Mm. And instead of doing it after a year as leader, having to wait two years, uh, showing a quality of patience that my parents would never have recognized. (laughs) Um, And then the difficult part wasn't denouncing them. It was the follow-through of ensuring that we very, very fastidiously stuck to the rules of natural justice in evidence gathering and presentation and in the conclusions reached. That took eight months and hundreds of hours, which I would have much preferred to dedicate to policy development. Um, there's some allies, well, like builders' allies of Starmer, obviously on the Labour right, apparently urging him to uh, boot out 11 MPs who signed an anti-NATO stop the war letter um, after the invasion of Ukraine. Um, and sources said at the next election, the Tories won't make it about Ed Miliband in Alex Salmon's pocket. It'll be Keir Starmer in Richard Bergen's pocket. Um, leaving aside the fact I don't think most people know who Richard Bergen is. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, do you think that that is going too far? That is perhaps sort of you know, too neurotic about, um, I mean, I guess, you know, a little purge. (laughs) Well, first of all, of course, there's nothing in the Labour Party rules that prevents people from having opinions, Mm. even convictions. The point at which it becomes unacceptable under the rules is where they have a consistent organisation with its alternative policy, philosophies and propaganda. So those people know very well where the line is set, 
And if they've got any sense at all and any loyalty to the Labour Party and to the people that they serve, they will stop short of that line. It's as straightforward as that. Now, I actually think that there would be a danger, since we're talking about a handful, or less than two handful, um, to give them the prominence of exclusion. Uh, I think uh, a good discussion that manifests a readiness to hear what they have to say and rebuts it is probably the better way. It uses up time that no leader has really got, Hmm. but it's part of the arts and sciences of management in the Labour Party. And of course, the Labour Party is distinguished from the Tory party in many, many, many healthy ways. But one of the distinctions is that Labour leaders, most of the time, have to manage their parties to an extent that other party leaders don't have to do with their parties. Uh, Part of that is healthy because it means that Labour is a democratic party with a a decent diversity of opinion and that people have got to be convinced. Part of it is such a bloody distraction that it really would mean that even if you started the leadership with hair, you'd end up (laughs) Without it at the end. I'm slightly uncomfortable with this running metaphor, which has been established. Well, both Ian and I would be well placed to, uh, to take on the challenge, I think. So do you, how does this compare, this period, this sort of, I suppose, this post-Corbyn period of, of sort of fractiousness? When you look at it, do you just go, well, this is sort of par for the course, that there are always these sort of arguments within the Labour Party? Does it feel yeah, particularly it, bitter? You're not on Twitter, so you probably think, <laughs> but you might have a very different impression to I do about how bitter this is. Oh, yeah, I, I, it can get very nasty. And I thank Providence that there wasn't social media when I was active or significant in politics. Even if you grow rhinoceros skin, which is highly unlikely, you can't help but being distracted by some extent mm. by those slings and arrows. And when they appear at hourly or minute-by-minute intervals, that makes it even more difficult to resist and, most important of all, more difficult to keep your eye on the main task and your mind focused on the business of trying to secure a breadth of appeal secure democratic votes, and get elected by the proper process. That's the task that you've got. And anything else that pulls you away from that, even when it's necessary to undertake such tasks, is just a damn nuisance. People think about this as a particular sort of labor issue where there's the things that you might believe and then there's the things that you think you can get people to vote for and what compromises do you make. In the election campaigns that you went into, how how much did you have to sort of to sacrifice to compromise on? How much were there were there these certain policies where you're just like, I think this would be fantastic for the country. It's not going to fly or there's just too many. Like you're saying, you're going to narrow it down. Like how how much did you feel you had to compromise on those manifestos? Compromise for a realistic political leader is like oxygen for human beings. Uh, You have to do it and uh, you'd better set your mind to doing it or you're just not going to be able to sleep. 
So I'll give you two examples very briefly. Uh, I had been uh, in the 50s uh, and 60s and into the 70s a committed member of the campaign for nuclear disarmament. My main reason for doing that was because I thought that with the commitment to nuclear arms, we were hugely diminishing the potential strength that we needed through conventional means. That was why I was involved in that, not because I thought that we would set a great moral example to the rest of the way if we abandoned nuclear weapons. It became very, very clear to me over a period of years that however considerate, however rational, however well supported by fact those arguments were, never more than 25% of the British people would support them. Never. Out of the question. So how much of it was an impediment to securing the attention and support of the public in other areas? A lot of it. And so I determined to make Labour uh, a multilateral disarmament party with a strong commitment to conventional strength and to the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, NATO. So that's what I did over a period of, well, it took me about seven years, six years. But and I had to work on it because people's commitment, understandably, was almost religious. It had gone very, very deep into genuine principle. And so people had to be uh, argued out of it. So that was one area in which I knew that it wasn't so much a matter of compromise with the electorate, but change of policy right. in order to get respect and understanding from the electorate. Then a policy that I put forward but failed to get the support in necessary quarters. I would have liked to have a policy of replacing part of income tax with a specific national health and community care charge, a tax that was proportionate and progressive as income tax can be, and the whole of the revenue would be dedicated entirely to the NHS and the transformed community care service. This was back in the late 1980s. Uh, I got agreement from a lot of people, including the great majority of the shadow cabinet, but the doughty opposition of John Smith, who took the Treasury line, that hypothecation, that direct financing was out of the question, totally unacceptable, and would taint us further with being the party of taxation. So in order not to have a set to with John, which would have been, of course, terrible politically, I relinquished that and thought, well, if we were to get elected, perhaps with the strength of the head and paper of 10 Downing Street, I could come back to it. But I use those two illustrations to show that if you live in the real world as you must, a life without compromise is unlivable. Certainly if you're trying to drive a car, bring up kids, mm. or lead a political party. And finally, we talked here about the, the Daily Mail going after Keir Starmer. Um, supporters of Jeremy Corbyn obviously said that no politician had been as treated as badly by the press as Jeremy Corbyn. I remember, um, I'm a little, little older than Ian, um, I remember some very brutal 
treatment of mm. you um, in the press at the time. Do you think that it has got worse? Or again, is this the sort of sort of bias towards the president? Or is it always harder for a Labour leader? This well, yes, it goes to the territory. And there's no good uh, Labour leaders whinging about uh, mistreatment by the press. Uh, I mean, I made one comment in the wake of the 1992 defeat about the usefulness of the tabloids to the Conservatives over years. And uh, people have turned that into a mythology. I understand that. Uh, Lord McAlpine, the former treasurer of the Conservative Party, he called the tabloid editors the heroes of the Tory victory. I quote him exactly. Um, uh, I've never used such phraseology, but the truth is that since elections are won and lost over years, not weeks, the cumulative effect on about 4 to 6% of the elect, never much more than that, of persistent daily negatives, not just in the headlines or in reporting, but in gossip columns, cartoons, photographs, all of the means at the disposal of the newspapers, that can have an effect. So given its permanence, uh, given that we understand the reasons for it, uh, the ownership by much of the British press, by tax exiles who lecture us about the virtues of patriotism, Rothermere, Murdoch, Barclay, and so on, uh, then you understand uh, the inconsistency, the hypocrisy, and you try to withstand the shot and shell. Tony Blair, very sensibly, though I argued with him at the start, set out in the company of Alastair Campbell to seek to neutralize at least part of the attack. And I said to them, please sup with these people with a much extended spoon, because <laughs> at some stage they will betray you, which, of course, they did. Yeah. But certainly over a period of years, that effort to neutralize, if not reverse that negativism, that perpetual attack, that cumulative effect was very useful and very sensible. Before we go, let's take a look at the stories that aren't getting the attention they deserve in Under the Radar. Uh, Roz. Well, people have made some um, bad predictions about what life would be like after the pandemic, myself included. Uh, but one of them was that the pay... Good job, isn't it? Pretty much, yeah. Um... <laughs> I didn't think they stipulated that they had to be bad. I thought that they were open to good. Um, one of them was that the pay uh, for for people in, who traditionally have been paid quite badly would go up because there was a shortage of labour in some key sectors like care, like uh, hotels, like food, things like this. And, they, and people, some people predicted that their wages would go up. And that hasn't happened at all. And it's quite a remarkable thing. Not only have, has that pay not risen, or it's gone up by about 7%, for example, in education and construction since the end of 2019, but the pay of people in finance has gone up by 30% on average, the Institute of Fiscal Studies said today. 30%. I mean, that is a, just a massive, massive uh, change. And it's not what was expected at all. And it suggests that that level of pay is out of control. And that resentment about that has a potential to build up a lot as we see the cost of living crisis bite. 
the resentment might build up. The problem is turning that resentment into influential action. Indeed. And what's evident in education, for instance, where they haven't kept above the water, in construction, where they're still below the surface, even though you mention the average wage increases there, at least in many respects in education and much of construction, they're organized. Elsewhere, in care, in retail, in hospitality, in services of various kinds, including transport, they're not organized. So the anguish and the resentment is individual and therefore largely powerless. And until the British workforce realizes again that only collective action and collective organization will have any effect, we're going to continue to be in this awful trough of uh, increasing inflation that is not matched remotely by advances in the level of incomes. I think you're saying join a union, yeah? I'm saying join a union. <laughs> and join an effective union, one that really doesn't only or mainly pay attention to its existing membership, but goes out and recruits and articulates and makes the case. It doesn't have to go on strike. It can make the case and secure protections and advance in a way that is now direly necessary. There are some unions, I belong to one of them, uh, that do that, the community union, which is formed from what was left of the steelworkers' union. Uh, but other unions are, it seems, content to serve their membership, not to provide a fresh opportunity. Ian, what's your under the radar? Well, I'm sort of picking up a bit on what Naomi said last week, um, which is just about the bills that they stuffed through Parliament uh, mm. in time for the local elections. So at the time that she was speaking, we just had the policing bill. Um, after that, we had the Judicial Review and Courts Bill, we had the Nationalities and Borders Bill, and we had the Elections Act. Um, I mean, these are all just terrible legislation. You've heard enough about the policing bill. You know what the elections bill does, which is essentially giving ministers a really quite substantial degree of control over what the Electoral Commission does. Mm. That, that is Tim Pot dictatorship-level yeah. stuff. The Nationalities Bill, you've seen the kind of things it does to refugees. And, and even the Judicial Review Bill, which isn't was much more moderate than we expected, is still a completely unnecessary interference in one of the key legal mechanisms for holding ministers to account. So what's incredible to me is that really was under the radar. Like, we hardly heard a goddamn thing about those bills. And you take them as a set, you're like, that is a profound encroachment on individual liberties and the ability of holding power to account. They got it all through the Commons last week. It's a weird one because we always talk about how the dead cat thing is extremely overplayed and a sort of like a, a form of conspiracy theory. But there is, does seem to be a failure. When we're doing under the radar, you do sometimes think, well, I know a lot about porn MP. <laughs> um, and I know and, a and upskirting and, <laughs> and all that. Yeah, absolutely. I know a little less absolutely. about these extremely important bills. It's not as if they're not being reported, but they're not the things that are rising to the surface, and so people don't really understand the implications. I think also it's quite hard for journalists to maintain the narrative on a bill. You know, the policing bill comes out it was nearly a year yeah. ago, so there's this explosion of outrage, but then. 
It kind of dribbles away. The parliamentary process takes longer than, than the outrage lasts. There's also kind of a nifty trick. You see it used, I think, with the elections bill. If you put a controversial thing up front, in this case, it was voter ID. Everyone talks about that. And then on the back end of the bill, you start putting this other stuff. There's actually even worse, but kind of a bit more technical. Right. And sort of all the, the oxygen gets sucked, gets sucked one way. But whichever way you look at it, this stuff deserved a lot more attention than it got. I take Ian's point entirely about the difficulty for journalists to maintain a narrative on what is ostensibly a complex piece or pieces. And whilst I understand the difficulty of maintaining a narrative, especially for an audience that wants its news straight and in relatively commendably simple language, and that's uh, there are very, very good reasons for that, it's not impossible for journalists to say, I can't sustain the narrative, but I can write a piece with bullet points that says, these are the rights and protections you as a British citizen had last week, and they don't exist this week, or they have become so conditional as to become unusable. The general citizenry isn't really concerned about the right to protest, because People don't spend their lives quite naturally and reasonably protesting. But at the basis of our unwritten constitution is the idea, the certainty that if we want to object to the way in which things are being run or proposals for the future, we can. Mm. And nothing can stop us because we're Brits. And... (laughs) That circle of rights, if you like, that island that we inhabit of entitlements and protections by virtue of being British, that's smaller than it was when the tide came in last week. Uh, And Neil, finally, what what have you got for Under the Radar? Well, Under the Radar, at just about all times, are the real bills of Brexit. And... Catnip to us. Quite, (laughs) but there will be the odd item on the price of fruit or flowers, vegetables, and reference to the difficulties some firms are encountering because of the new impediments to trade. But there is no consistent, factual, easily digestible story run by just about any of the daily newspapers or newscasts on radio and TV about the real bills that are piling up so that we have to look to specialist analysts uh, who are independent in their work, their reputation depends upon it, to see that imports and exports by this island nation are 15% down against the trend that existed pre-Brexit. Productivity is 4% down, and if productivity is down, that partly accounts for inflation being up. The think tank UK in a Changing Europe calculates that directly Brexit, because of inhibitions to the freedom of trade and friction in trading and the change in the terms of trade, that is, import and export prices relative to one another, all of that accounts for a 6% increase in the price of food in the United Kingdom. 
And worst of all for me, and the one that should be reprinted every week, the Office of Budget Responsibility set up specifically to invigilate budgetary policy by any and all governments has told us that because of Brexit directly, Britain will grow by 4% less than it would otherwise. Now, the same body and the National Statistics Authority will tell you that for every 1% loss of growth in GDP, gross domestic product, £9 billion is lost to public revenues. So it's 4% equals £32 billion lost for hospitals, uh, social care, policing, parks, libraries, education, you name it. And that's the real bill for Brexit that's coming in. And if people aren't told that, don't know it, you can't expect them to go in the highways mm. and byways of think tanks and independent research authorities, government or otherwise. But the newspapers really do have a duty to say, this is what's happening now. We don't care what you voted in 2016. It might have been totally justifiable for you at that time. That's fine. This is what's happening now. What are you going to do about it? And that's a, a question that should be addressed to every citizen. I hope long-term Romaniacs listeners uh, appreciated this pure red meat, this <laughs> dripping anti-Brexit well, red meat. Well, the truth is on our side. And the truth shall make you strong. <laughs> and that's the show. Thank you so much to Ian. Thank you. To Roz. Thank you. And to our special guest, Neil Kinnock. Thank you. Stay tuned for our extra bit exclusively for Patreons. You'll hear a preview after our theme song, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop, and a thanks to our latest backers. Hello, and thanks from me to Lee Clifford, David Howitt, Peter Jeffrey, Barbara Turner, Sarah Turner, Callum Barnard, Nick McCarran, Elizabeth Harries, Ian Craggs, and JC. And I know that's you, JC. I know exactly which JC that is. It's Jeremy Corbyn. <laughs> Best wishes and greetings from me to Hugh Stokes, Catherine Hayes, Helen Lang Clapp, Dennis Lightfate, Sunetta Kainth, Dustin Holland, Rio Hernandez, Matthew McDonnell, Andrew Saniel, and Rob Wilson. And thanks from me to James Newman, Sam Proctor, Brian Hopkins, Lisa Stam, Katie Thatcher, Dark Satanic Pills, Jane DeCure, Neil Murphy, Amble Scoose, and Hannah Crossley. Oh God, What Now is presented by Dorian Linsky with Ian Dunn and Roz Taylor. Audio production came from me, Robin Lieburn. The producers of Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronovich. Group editor is Andrew Harrison. Lead producer, Jacob Jarvis. And Oh God, What Now is a Podmasters production. Welcome to the Oh God, What Now extra bit exclusively for Patreon backers. Over the long bank holiday weekend, you may have been tempted to escape from Westminster politics into the warm embrace of fiction. There's no such thing as Frank Mansoir or the honourable member for Tractor Porn. So we're asking the panel to choose their favourite fictional MPs. The real former MP, I'm afraid, has left us. So it's just, it's just us three. Uh, Roz. Oh, my favourite has got to be Phineas Finn, who is, of course, a 
big character in Trollope, possibly the best character in Trollope. And I think I can say that with some authority because during the pandemic, I basically read the whole of Trollope. What? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It That's totally like John Major-esque mm, yeah. project. Yeah, it was very calming. And um, how, mu- how much Trollope is there? Oh, there are kind of literally scores. Which, so which so Trollope? I've, I'm not a Trollope man. So what Trollope novel is this? The the novels are called Phineas Finn and Phineas uh, Finn. Rita. That was a trailer for the bonus bit in this week's podcast. If you'd like a little bit more, oh God, what now? Every week without ads and a day early, then sign up to back us on Patreon for as little as £2 a month. You'll also get our weekly minicast, Oh God, What Else? every Monday morning, exclusive to backers. Your support keeps us going. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week.